So it's a very great pleasure for me to be here at the LSC. It's the first time, despite being a Londoner and having gone to UCL, it's the first time I've ever set foot in the LSC. So it's an exciting moment for me. Um, I'm actually an endangered species myself. My name's Anne Robinson, and I'm an NHS doctor who still enjoys my job. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how long that will last, but so far, so good. And the other thing I like to do is health journalism, and that is because I cannot imagine a greater thrill than trying to get to the next scientific or medical breakthrough and story. And there is no one probably better that I can think of than, Dr. Jer than Jeremy Taylor, who's here to speak to us tonight, who I think perfectly exemplifies that kind of alchemy that happens when somebody delves into a scientific subject and then has the passion to come and explain it to the rest of us. Uh, having read the book that Jeremy has just uh, published, which I cannot recommend highly enough, uh, I can see that he's an absolute master at this, and I do recommend it to everyone here. So our speaker, Jeremy Taylor, um, started off studying botany and zoology and then served... Uh, time at the BBC where he made some seminal documentaries with Richard Dawkins on evolutionary biology amongst other subjects and um, then um, to our benefit he gave up TV to mainly write books and it's this latest book that he'll be talking to us about now. Jeremy. Thanks very much indeed, Anne, for that very kind invitation, uh, introduction. And thanks also to the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science here at the LSE for hosting this lecture and inviting me to give it. And good evening to everybody else. Thanks for, very much indeed for coming. Now, I've written Body by Darwin because, like many scientists in the burgeoning field of evolutionary medicine, which is about 20 years old this year, I believe that modern medicine limits itself because too often it fails to take evolution into account in its explanation of the disease process. Tonight, I'm going to talk um, about disease of pregnancy, cancer, and dementia. And it's my job to try and persuade you that thinking about these, the causes of these diseases through the eyes of a Darwinian really does lead you to fresh, exciting and useful new insights and allows you to frame illness in a more productive way, even if evolution only too often has a nasty habit of driving us into the doctor's surgery. During the research for Body by Darwin, I interviewed the most courageous, single-minded and determined woman I think I've ever met. Her name is Priya Taylor and she lives in West London. Priya wanted to start a family as soon as she got married in 2003 and she got pregnant on her honeymoon. But her tiny baby Alexander had to be delivered prematurely at 25 weeks, weighing only one pound and unfortunately died two days later. Undaunted, Priya got pregnant again within two months of losing Alexander, but at ten weeks the doctors could detect no fetal heartbeat. She had a dilation and curatage operation to remove fetal and placental tissue, and soon was pregnant again. Another failure was quickly followed by six more, all of which lasted between four and ten weeks. Two months later, she started her first round of IVF. It was to be the first of six, and five of them led to short-lived pregnancies. Finally, her last IVF cycle produced 14 fertilized eggs, of which two were implanted. And after the most turbulent pregnancy you can possibly imagine, during which she lost one of the fetuses, had the neck of her cervix stitched up to prevent the loss of the other, and developed a highly abnormal placenta, she finally gave birth by caesarean section at 35 weeks to the one baby that survived, baby Maya. Now, the gynaecologist looking after Priya was Jan Brosens, who is now the head of reproductive health at the University of Warwick. And he believes Priya is a prime example of women who've developed a fault in an evolutionary mechanism for embryo quality control. The result for Priya have been rapid conceptions, but a high degree of pregnancy loss. I'd been led to Brosens by the brilliant evolutionary theorist from Harvard, David Haig, 
who suspected that Brosen's research could be an example of the genetic conflict theory in pregnancy that he's been working on for the last 20 years. Now, while most of us consider making babies the ultimate cooperative effort, evolutionary biologists, of course, know better. Because in reality, the genetic interests of mother, father, and fetus are not identical. Any fetus, of course, will uh, receive 50% of its genes from its mother, but it will also inherit 50% from its father. And the two copies of every gene a baby inherits have the propensity to behave differently depending on that paternal or maternal origin. Throughout the animal kingdom, but especially so in humans, the female shoulders far more of the metabolic costs of bringing any baby to term and nourishing and caring for it after birth than does the father. Furthermore, every baby a mother brings into the world has to be genetically related to her, but they may have different fathers. It's therefore in the mother's best genetic interests uh, to temper the investment she makes in any one baby in favour of spreading that investment out over any hypothetical number of babies she may incubate over her entire active reproductive life. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's in the selfish interest of paternal genes, in the shape of the fetus and placenta, to demand more from the mother than she's inclined to give. For a mother, the loss of one child, however upsetting, can be compensated for by, the lo- uh, by any number of later pregnancies, by any number of partners. But for ed- a fetus, it's an existential matter, grow or die. And this sets the scene for conflict. So evolutionary biologists like Haig would expect paternal genes to manipulate the mother into allowing the indiscriminate implantation of embryos and then to give up more food reserves to the ensuing fetus than is in her long-term interest to do. And they'd expect maternal genes to resist that manipulation via evolved mechanisms to counteract it. That was why, when I asked David Haig a few years ago if he had any recent examples of the application of his theory in the real world, in his typically thoughtful fashion, he laid a paper trail for me that led to Jan Brosen's door. Brosen's is an expert on recurrent spontaneous abortion, and he in turn places great importance on some research published five years ago by Joris Vermeesh of the Catholic University of Leuven which suggested to him that the conflict between male and female genetic interests can indeed be taken right back to the moment of conception. One of the bugbears of IVF treatment is that many embryos obtained by hormonally stimulating the ovary suffer from genetic abnormality. So there's a high rejection rate in the search for suitable embryos to implant. Vermeesh investigated this using embryos obtained from perfectly normal, healthy young women, only to discover, to his astonishment, that over 90% of them also suffered from a high level of genetic abnormality. They were, in fact, chaotic. Half of them had no diploid cells, 23 normal pairs of chromosomes, at all. Some had chromosomes missing or chunks of chromosomes missing. Fragmentations deletions or abnormal amplifications of genetic material. Now you'd think such embryos would be totally unviable. Yet the mystery is that although the rate of pregnancy loss in humans is very high at about 70%, it's far lower than the percentage, 90%, of genetically chaotic embryos. So if some of these embryos clearly go on to make babies, why do they go through this genome chaos in the first place? Brosens and his colleague Nick Macklin from the University of Southampton believe it's a strategy to make the embryo more invasive. The only other instance of such high levels of genetic instability, as we'll see a little later, comes from aggressive, invasive cancer cells. So the unsettling suggestion is that very early embryos can temporarily transition into something akin to cancer. Embryos are such aggressive interlopers, they don't even need a uterus. Ectopic pregnancies rise when they manage to implant outside the uterine wall. 
1999, a girl called Sage Dalton was born outside the womb because her placenta had managed to burrow into the rich blood supply to a benign fibrous tumour in her mother's abdomen. If, Brosens theorised, this was a male genetic strategy to get poor quality or otherwise incompatible embryos to implant, you'd expect females to have evolved an effective countermeasure to safe-wasting precious resources gestating unwanted embryos. And they've done this, he says, through the evolution of menstruation and a narrow time window in the menstrual cycle when effective implantation can take place. Earlier theories have tried to account for the proposed adaptive value of menstruation by suggesting it evolved to protect the female reproductive tract against sperm-borne pathogens, or that menstruation was less metabolically costly than constantly maintaining a thick uterine wall. But Brosen's work suggests that menstruation comes hand-in-hand with the evolution of a process called spontaneous decidualization, which allows human mothers to quality control invading embryos. During this pregnancy response, mild inflammation in the uterine wall uh, uh, causes cells to encapsulate the embryo and recruits immune cells bristling with receptors to the site to literally interrogate the embryo for compatibility. The adaptive value of menstruation is that it preconditions the uterus to temporarily go through these decidual changes and prepare itself to incorporate and then interrogate embryos. This may explain why baby girls frequently experience menstruation during the first few days of life, after which the uterus becomes quiescent until menarche and why at Meneke it's usual for young women to menstruate for up to two years before they begin to ovulate. Brosens and his colleagues believe it's no accident that menstruation so precedes pregnancy. It's the intense bleeding and inflammation of menstruation that does the preconditioning of the uterus. Repeated, regular menstruation also makes sure that the transient inflammatory reaction to an attempted implantation is attenuated, sufficient to stimulate the necessary changes in the uterus without being severe enough to kill the embryo outright. Now, the window of receptivity for embryos is small. Most women implant within a narrow window about six or seven days after ovulation. But there are a number of women who implant much later, even 8 to 11 days beyond. And there's an exponential increase in miscarriage with this late implantation. Brosens believes this is because late implantation misses that crucial window of receptivity in which the decidual changes in the uterine wall prepare the mother to envelop and examine implanting embryos rather like a stern schoolmistress. Because that window of receptivity is also a crucial window for embryo recognition and selection, women who allow late implantation, like Priya Taylor, have developed a fault in an evolved female mechanism for embryo quality control that then reveals itself as a reproductive illness. They're super fertile, but sooner or later, they'll lose their pregnancy. Now, there's another tale of evolution inside our bodies, but this is not a type of evolution that aids our survival. It's evolution that can kill us and is so bizarre it flies in the face of accepted Darwinian theory. It's the evolution of cancer. Despite all the hoopla about increased survival times for patients suffering from cancer, the stark fact remains that if you were born since the 1960s, your chance of contracting some form of cancer is now 50%, one in two. Now, I'm sure that many of us outside the world of cancer research, when asked to picture a solid tumour, would imagine a ball of similar runaway cells constantly dividing, making up that growing tumour mass. But if that were the case, cancer would be easy to cure. In reality... The reason cancer still lies at the absolute limit of what medicine can tackle lies in heterogeneity, variability, which, of course, is the raw material for all evolution. A couple of years ago, 
I was invited to witness open brain surgery to remove a glioblastoma. This is a particularly aggressive form of cancer with a very poor prognosis. Median survival time is only five months. I'll never forget the moment when neurosurgeon Colin Watts cut away the tough dura mater surrounding the brain and the cancer swelled up the size of a pullet's egg, bright rosy pink in contrast to the paler, yellower, healthy brain around it. Now, as Watts carefully dissected down through the cancer, he occasionally paused to cut out a small sample and pop it into a plastic container. And by the time the operation was finished, he'd amassed five or six samples from very different areas of the tumour mass. And these were sent off to the lab for careful genomic analysis. And that analysis has revealed that glioblastomas are composed of many subpopulations of cancer cells called clones, each having different genetics, different types of mutations, different levels of gene activity, and wildly different, grotesque chromosomal abnormalities. In a typical example, a founding clone had split into a complex branching tree of clones that increasingly diverged from one another and accumulated different malignant traits. An early event in one clone was a chromosomal instability that resulted in the formation of a highly aberrant circular chromosome called a double minute, which could replicate under its own steam and contained hundreds of copies, instead of the normal two, of the EGFR gene which can cause cells to divide, proliferate, and migrate. This clone had also gained copies of the MET gene, which gives rise to invasive growth and a poor prognosis for the patient, and had lost copies of the tumour suppressor genes CDKN2A and PTEN. It had then split into two subclones, which gained parts of one chromosome and lost parts of others, accumulated further mutations to tumour suppressor genes, and finally diverged into five substantially different tumour clones. Malignant cancers typically develop from precancerous changes in cells called dysplasia. And the huge problem for oncologists is in trying to decide from biopsy slides what the likelihood is that any abnormalities they see at this stage will turn from dysplasia into malignant cancer. Dysplasia can be graded low to high, and in colon cancer, typically, 50% of patients with high-grade dysplasia will go on to cancer. But, of course, this means 50% won't. Oncologists, in the present state of knowledge, can't take the risk. And so all patients in this condition are offered a colectomy and will spend the rest of their lives with a stoma and a colostomy bag. The situation is even more dire with suspected esophageal cancer, where only 15% of patients with high-grade dysplasia will develop cancer. But if they do, it's extremely aggressive and lethal. I spoke to an American writer called Bob Tell, who'd gone into his local hospital for a routine colonoscopy to check for signs of colon cancer. He was all clear down there. But his gastroenterologist, knowing he'd complained of a long history of acid reflux from his stomach, said, well, as long as I've got you on the table, Bob, why don't I check the other end? The dysplasia they found in the ensuing biopsy called Barrett's esophagus, that's the red patch on the slide, um, was estimated to be so severe, his doctors feared he'd soon develop esophageal cancer and he came under great pressure to have his entire esophagus surgically removed. A fiendishly difficult operation that until recently only 20% of patients survived. Luckily for Bob, he hit the internet in a blue funk and came across the name of Brian Reed at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Centre in Seattle, whose expertise directly contradicted the earlier biopsy results. And Bob has remained cancer-free on regular surveillance ever since. Reed has attempted to put some degree of confidence into cancer prediction by establishing the biggest cohort of Barrett's patients in the U.S., and he's patiently built up a picture through time from a history of biopsies from each patient, 
of the mutations and chromosomal instabilities that occur in the esophageal lining of those patients who progressed to full-blown cancer compared to those that did not. In the group that eventually progressed to cancer, the genome rapidly became increasingly more disorganized and abnormal. They found a sudden increase in chromosomal instability, which occurred very suddenly and very rapidly, so that the genomes underwent gains and losses of chromosome arms, or whole chromosomes, about four years before cancer developed. And two years before the cancer, they underwent a catastrophic telltale chromosome doubling. This doubling is called tetraploidy. The normal 23 diploid pairs of chromosomes become 23 quartets. It's been found in any number of potentially lethal cancers, and it's a red flag to oncologists that a new stage in malignancy has been reached. But why is tetraploidy so malignant? It may be that it allows some copies of genes to remain working normally, ensuring the cancer cell survives, while mutation and chromosomal instability drastically remodel other parts of the genome. And it is certainly a prelude to a further drastic cascade of chromosomal mayhem. Tetraploids typically degenerate further into an abnormal chromosome number somewhere between tetraploidy and diploidy called aneuploidy. And this can give rise to translocations when parts of chromosomes mistakenly attach themselves to others and either give rise to highly aberrant fusion genes or lead to changes in the number of copies of genes. These copy number changes frequently change the, increase the numbers of mutations that drive cancer or decrease the copies of tumor suppressor genes, both of which can have drastic consequences. Charles Swanton, now at the Crick Institute here in London, has shown how tetraploidy in colon cancer cells can drastically accelerate cancer evolution, increasing the chance of relapse after two years of treatment by five times. It represents, he says, a major macromutational step that reminds him of the now discredited theories of the saltationists of Victorian biology, like Richard Owen and Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire who proposed that monstrosities could become the founding fathers of new species through instantaneous transition from one form to the next. Chromosomal instability in cancer can occasionally become so abrupt that the researchers who study it are led to suggest that cancer evolution does not conform to classical evolutionary theory at all. In 2011, Philip Stevens and a group of fellow researchers from the Sanger Institute in Cambridge reported a cataclysmic event that had caused dozens of chromosomal abnormalities to arise in one fell crisis in a white blood cell from a 62-year-old woman with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. You would have thought that such a disaster would have killed that cell stone dead. But the cell survived and founded a clone of similar cancer cells. As the patient deteriorated rapidly, resistant to the monoclonal antibody, alemtuzumab, and died. They've since described similar catastrophic events in bone marrow, esophagus, colon, and kidney cancer. And they've coined a new name for it, chromothripsis, which means chromosomes shattering into pieces. In a particularly spectacular event in lung cancer cells, chromosome 8 spontaneously shattered into pieces, leaving hundreds of shards of DNA circulating unfettered in the nucleus. The DNA repair machinery leapt into action like a whirling dervish, pasting bits back together willy-nilly, they said, in a helter-skelter tumult of activity. The resultant hodgepodge, they said, bears little resemblance to the original chromosome structure, and the scale of genomic disruption has wholesale and potentially oncogenic effects. Chromosome 8 had been stitched back together again into a patchwork chromosome, with the exception of 15 DNA fragments that had joined together to form a double-minute chromosome, similar to the glioblastoma example, which contained up to 200 copies of the Mike oncogene. 
and this massive amplification had conferred a huge selective advantage on this cancer cell line and had made it more malignant. The researchers who work on all these cataclysmic genetic events in cancer cells evoke an outrageous theory as to how evolution and speciation can occur. This was championed by the evolutionary heretic Richard Goldschmidt and branded the hopeful monsters theory. Goldschmidt was a Jewish refugee who escaped the Nazis to take up a position at the University of California at Berkeley, and he crossed the line for the vast majority of evolutionary biologists with the publication in 1940 of his book The Material Basis of Evolution. This maintained that gradual stepwise accumulation of mutations are not sufficient to explain the evolution of one species from another. Macro mutations, drastic mutational change, are necessary. Well, eventually the gradualists won the day, arguing that such wholesale genomic change would invariably prove disastrous for complex multicellular organisms. But it's become obvious in the intervening years that in much simpler organisms, like many bacterial species and clones of cancer cells, sudden massive genomic change can occasionally pay off despite the loss of many unviable individuals, if the selection pressure on these organisms is sufficiently harsh. Cancer cells are indeed hopeful monsters. And in the specific context of cancer evolution, Goldschmidt is being rehabilitated. Now I'd like to finish tonight with an example of where an evolutionary model of a disease process has challenged a medical orthodoxy that stood for over a hundred years. Alzheimer's disease was named after Alois Alzheimer in about 1901 and first described in the post-mortem brain of one of his dementia patients, Auguste Dieter. The plaques he described between neurons and the tangles he described inside them we now know to be comprised of the beta amyloid protein and the phosphorylated form of the tau protein, respectively. Ever since, Alzheimer's disease research has been dominated by the assumption that these two proteins cause the disease. And as a result, over $20 billion has been spent to date by the pharmaceutical industry on medical trials of drugs that either interfere with the production of amyloid or try to clear it out of the brain. And none of them have been remotely successful. Yet this amyloid orthodoxy rumbles on, even though recently it's been dealt a couple of body blows. Two studies have shown that a large number of people dying in their 70s, 80s and even beyond had pin-sharp cognition in brains laden with amyloid. And three genome-wide association studies uh, for genetic contributions to Alzheimer's disease could detect no variation at all attributable to the genes involved in producing amyloid and tau. They did, however, implicate a number of genes involved in the immune system. I met a man called Brian Ross, now in his early 70s, who used to be a senior engineer in the British Army Air Corps. He'd been diagnosed 10 years previously with Alzheimer's and he was finding it increasingly difficult to function. He still enjoyed watching documentaries on television, but half an hour after they'd finished, he'd lost all memory of them. He'd given up reading in frustration because he can no longer pick up a book from where he last left off. His wife, Marie, noted that something he must have previously done a million times, like changing the fuse in a plug is now completely beyond him. She finds the most painful thing is that Brian now has great difficulty remembering key, enjoyable past events. And she had to fight back the tears as she explained that for her, the whole point of a life together is that it revolves around shared, treasured memories. Memories her husband no longer has. Brian is taking part in a trial at the University of Southampton, run by the uh, professor of biological psychiatry, Clive Holmes. It involves taking a drug called etanercept, usually used to treat the painful inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis. 
For 30 years, there's been a small rump of sceptical scientists who've refused to believe amyloid is the main culprit in Alzheimer's disease. Historically, they've been shunted to the sidelines, often derided, underfunded, and often refused publication. Until the 1980s, it was believed the brain had no immune system at all, that it was an immune-privileged organ. But some of these scientists discovered that brain cells called microglia, formerly thought to be just structural elements in the brain, were the equivalent of macrophages in the peripheral circulation, capable of churning out pro-inflammatory cytokine messenger molecules like interleukin-1 and interleukin-6, just as does the innate immune system in the rest of the body as it fights infections. This inflammatory behaviour preceded the build-up of amyloid, suggesting that amyloid was the result of immune activity rather than the cause, per se, of Alzheimer's disease. Clive Holmes remembers attending a lecture by one of these sceptics, Patrick McGear, in the late 1990s, on the links between inflammation and Alzheimer's. And it rang bells with him, because many of the Alzheimer's patients he was dealing with reported that infections made their condition worse. He went home and teamed up with an experimental neuropathologist, Hugh Perry. They decided on a joint experiment with 300 patients, where they measured cytokine levels in the blood and interviewed them about their history of infections. They discovered that those patients who had chronic inflammatory illnesses, like heart disease, diabetes and arthritis, were declining four times faster with Alzheimer's than healthier individuals. And those patients with a background of inflammatory illness and an occasional spike of recent infections superimposed upon it were declining tenfold. Now, these early results confirmed to Holmes and Perry that states of peripheral infection and inflammation with their raised levels of circulating pro-inflammatory cytokines, were able to communicate with the brain. However, at the time, it was heresy to suggest that the immune system could speak to the brain and affect its chemistry and behaviour. Psychoneuroimmunology, as it was then known, was marginalised science, Hugh Perry told me. Because people felt that if you called yourself a neuroimmunologist, it just meant you were a crap neuroscientist or a crap immunologist. So if you now added psycho to all that, well, it meant you didn't understand a damn thing. However, Perry happened to meet the chief European exponent of this crap science, Robert Danzer, at a scientific meeting in France. And Dancer told him about a 30-year-old evolutionary theory called sickness behaviour, which sought to explain the relationship between fever and illness and the almost hibernatory behaviour of animals when in the throes of recovery from infections or poisoning. The author of sickness behaviour in the early 1980s was a veterinary scientist at the University of California at Davis called Benjamin Hart. Hart observed that both animals and people at the onset of a severe infection run a fever and tend to become lethargic, depressed and anorexic. They prefer a burrow or a bed to the office or a foraging run outdoors. The sleepiness and depression cuts down activity and channels valuable energy into stoking the fever. And since it's well known that pathogens prefer temperatures lower than the human body, Sickness behaviour, said Hart, is not the effect of debilitation, but rather an an organised, evolved behavioural strategy to facilitate the role of fever in combating viral and bacterial infections. Hart specifically identified pro-inflammatory cytokines as capable of causing that fever as they incited macrophages to converge on the pathogen and destroy it and suggested the same cytokines could communicate with the brain to elicit the the depression and appetite loss that attended the fever. Danza modernised Hart's theory by explaining precisely how signals of infection in the periphery could communicate with the brain and induce sleepiness, social withdrawal, loss of appetite, 
fatigue and aching joints. He also asked, what happens when the acute sickness response is no longer adaptive? Either because it's out of proportion with the set of causal factors that were the trigger for it, or because the sickness response is prolonged, as occurs during a variety of chronic inflammatory diseases. And he specifically cites depression and Alzheimer's disease as two likely repercussions of sickness behaviour becoming maladaptive. Now, sickness behaviour has given Holmes and Perry a solid evolutionary context for their hypothesis that infection and inflammation in the body can raise cytokine levels in the periphery and communicate that state to the brain to initiate a similar inflammation there. And they hypothesised that repeated inflammatory signals prime microglia so that they overact and start turning on and damaging neurons. Their model for Alzheimer's has been robustly supported by Irene Nussel and Dimitri Christik from Switzerland, using a recognised mouse model for Alzheimer's disease. Nussel injected pregnant mouse, mice with a chemical called poly-IC, which mimics viral infections. It caused chronic raised inflammatory cytokine levels in the brains of the foetuses, a reduction in the growth and development of neurons as those foetuses matured, and a significant increase in the precursor of beta amyloid in the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain responsible for learning and memory, and the first to become heavily affected in Alzheimer's. They also identified activated microglia in the hippocampus. Now, things became even more interesting when they gave a second dose of poly-IC during adulthood to mice that had previously been challenged in the womb. This mimicked an adult systemic infection. They discovered widespread changes in both size and morphology of microglia, especially in the hippocampus, which suggested they had indeed become primed. They also found pronounced amyloid plaques in the double immune-challenged mice compared to controls. They'd produced a comprehensive mouse model of Alzheimer's where the sequence of events ran from infection to inflammation in the brain, an exaggerated response of microglia, damaged neurons, accumulation of phosphorylated tau inside neurons, and accumulation of amyloid plaque between them. Their model of Alzheimer's disease has completely reversed the arrow of causation, making infection and inflammation the prime movers. And only last week, a colleague of Holmes and Perry at the University of Southampton, Diego Gomez-Nicola, published yet more research that vindicates this inflammation theory. He found that microglia were far more numerous in the brains of patients who had died from Alzheimer's disease than in age-matched controls. Furthermore, in the mouse model of Alzheimer's disease, he showed that by chemically blocking the receptor that determines microglia number, he could prevent the rise in microglia numbers, prevent the loss of communications between neurons, and produce mice with fewer memory and behavioural problems, even though their brains were full of amyloid. Now, all this research makes complete sense of several retrospective trials in the late 1990s, which suggested that the long-term taking of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and aspirin helped to prevent Alzheimer's. The biggest study by the Veterans Administration in the States compared 50,000 former servicemen who had subsequently contracted Alzheimer's with 200,000 that remained undemented. And the data revealed that taking ibuprofen for five years or more had more than halved the risk. There's a final evolutionary twist to this story. Humans are the only species that suffers from late-onset late Alzheimer's disease, the form that accounts for over 99% of cases. A gene, CD33, has recently been discovered that affects whether or not microglia perform a benign, protective role or an aggressive role that can lead to Alzheimer's pathology. Levels of CD33 protein and numbers of CD33-producing microglia are increased as Alzheimer's develops. Microglia, as well as producing cytokines as part of the inflammatory response, 
are also the innate immune system's scavenging cells in the brain. They'll gobble up cell debris, damaged and dying neurons, and beta amyloid by a process called phagocytosis. But when CD33 is active, those microglia stop benign housekeeping and they become inflammatory and neurotoxic and they stop gobbling up rubbish. A group of scientists who study evolutionary medicine in San Diego have recently estimated that the CD33 gene rose to prominence in humans after the split with a common ancestor with chimpanzees, a time when human um, brains were evolving rapidly. It may be a classic example of what I call the live-now-pay-later phenomenon, known as antagonistic pleiotropy in the trade. It's so common in evolutionary models of disease. There must be something extremely useful to young human brains that warrants the evolution of a gene that increases inflammation via innate immune system activity while decreasing the removal of beta amyloid from the brain. My suggestion is that CD33 evolved to help protect young brains in individuals with a full reproductive life ahead of them from head injury and microbial brain infections, even though in older, post-reproductive age, it carries the risk of dementia. Beta amyloid, in appropriate concentrations, is not at all pathogenic, but has important evolved functions in the brain. It's absolutely vital for regulating the traffic of of signals across networks of neurons, supporting long-term potentiation by which memories are stored, and preventing the overexcitability of neuronal networks, which we might experience as fits. There's even emerging evidence that beta amyloid is a powerful antimicrobial agent, which may have evolved in the brain to help to protect it against infections. But there's also a variant of the CD33 gene that reduces the amount of CD33 protein it manufactures, and it's therefore protective against Alzheimer's disease. And it occurs at low frequency, in balance with the more toxic variants of CD33 in all human populations. The San Diego scientists argue that this protective variant was derived quite recently, much less than half a million years ago, and they suggest it could have evolved because early human populations increasingly needed grandparents to survive into old age and still be on top of their cognitive game, capable of looking after grandchildren and contributing knowledge and wisdom to younger generations, rather than simply being a senile burden. Capable grandparents would have aided the youngsters' survival and the survival of grandparental genes in them. So kin selection might have been just strong enough to maintain this balance between the gene variant for extended post-reproductive lifespan and the variant that mitigates against old age in favour of an aggressive immune system during youth. Well, I suppose it's a wonder we oldies are not all tottering around with Alzheimer's disease today, given that infection is such a constant fact of life, and given the huge potential for heart disease diabetes, obesity and other inflammatory ailments. It may finally come down to which immunity gene variants each of us is endowed with that decides whether or not we're somewhat protected against the inflammation that fires up dementia or left susceptible to it. So I suppose the take-home message of this final story, at least for anyone in the audience over the age of 60, might well be, take a tip from evolution and an ibuprofen before bedtime. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Jeremy. That, that was excellent. It was like I said, it was alchemy, wasn't it? So now we've got 10 minutes left for questions. I'm sure we'll have lots. If you want to give your name and something about your affiliation and keep the question quite short. Uh, we've got some roving mics, I think. So there's gentlemen here in the middle. Thank you. Uh, thank you. My name's Ian Orr, and I suppose I, I know the insides of hospitals fairly well, so I have that sort of interest. Uh, 
but also a philosophical interest. I, I'd like you to say a bit more about the time scale and geographical extent that affects sort of evolutionary pressures and results. So it's quite clear from the, as it were, the rapid evolution of the bacteria in your gut yeah. that it's, as it were, evolution at the individual level may have an outcome on one person developing or not developing a particular illness at a certain time. But a lot of the pressures are ones that seem to work, uh, well, largely within communities of human beings, but of course also communities of other organisms, uh, particularly birds, mammals, and so on. So just if you could say a little bit more about well, that framework. Absolutely. Let me pick up on precisely the example you hinted at there, which I didn't go into in the talk, which is the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis, which is the idea that we owe it to the microbial populations of our guts, uh, now known as our microbiota, um, for, for a lot of our, our health today. Certainly, um, uh, they do seem to be very strongly connected with our resistance to a whole range of allergies and autoimmune diseases. Now, the interesting thing about this, a lot of people get the hygiene hypothesis wrong because they sort of say, oh, well, we've, you know, we've, um, we've, uh, we've allowed our kiddie to go into the backyard and get his hands dirty and, uh, and we've given up all those disinfectants that kill 99% of all household germs, but his allergy's not getting any better. So the hygiene hypothesis is clearly rubbish. Uh, but the whole thing about the hygiene hypothesis is not what happens out here on your hands, it's what happens down here in your guts. And that's where the evolution has a very long historical depth because uh, over really millennia, we have learnt to live with a variety of microbes, mainly because we couldn't keep them out of us. And we've learnt to live with a whole variety of what are known as helminths, which are parasitic worms of one description or another, because the immune costs of trying to get rid of them would have been far too high in collateral damage. So what has happened over millennia is that these organisms, in order to stay inside us and not be attacked by our immune system, have actually evolved ways in which they can regulate our immune systems, the better for us to tolerate them. And as a side product, the better for us to regulate our immune systems and prevent allergies and um, autoimmune diseases occurring. So the extraordinary thing is that you do require, of course, this huge depth of evolutionary time for an extraordinary, delicate system like that to evolve, in which we actually, in effect, in, in a popular way, we've handed over control of our immune systems to the bugs in our guts but it's taken you know, millions of years to get there. But it only takes you know, a very short level of time to actually um, rupture and destroy you know, that beautifully honed, delicate kind of evolutionary mechanism. I mean, it's a classic example in um, where do we get our bugs? Where does any baby get its bugs? Well, of course, it gets it from, from the mother through vertical transmission. Um, the bacteria in the mother's guts go into her lymphatic system, into the breast, and are fed to the baby in breast milk. The baby picks up lactobacilli on its way out through the womb during natural vaginal childbirth. And that, that then starts to shape the, uh, the, the, the infant immune system right from the word go. But, you know, a lot of women cannot or will not breastfeed. A lot of women either have to elect or want to elect for cesarean section, and their babies do not get those bugs. And it's been shown very clearly in a number of studies that babies born of cesarean section are far more likely to develop a range of allergic and autoimmune diseases and behavioral problems, even autism. So it takes millions of years to build these beautiful, delicate evolutionary mechanisms up, and it takes um, a quick change, if you like, a much faster change in culture to destroy them. We've got time for a quick two more questions if anyone has a burning question. This gentleman there with the... 
Hang on, wait for the mic, otherwise no one will hear your comment. Uh, it was just a comment that um, a lot of the um, gut microbiota is actually in infants is controlled um, not by which what micro, what bugs they're dosed with, but what they're fed in the milk. So there's variation in um, oligosaccharides in milk that reshape the. Uh, it, ab- absolutely, it's a beautiful mechanism. Um, uh, uh, you obviously know quite a lot about it, but as I understand it, this was a great mystery for a long time. Um, Oligosaccharides, very long-chain sugars, um, exist in breast milk in surprisingly high concentrations, uh, much higher than any other mammal studied. The question is, what are they doing there? Because when they get into the baby, the baby can't digest them. Uh, It just doesn't have the enzymes to digest them. So all these insoluble sugars going down through the infant intestinal tract, uh, undigested. But what happens is, of course, they arrive at the large intestine And there they meet the bifida bacteria that have actually been put into the baby in breast milk alongside, they've been parachuted in, if you like, with their own food supply. And it's the oligosaccharides that are food for the bifida bacteria, not the baby. So the bifida bacteria, only a few days after birth, grow to become the vastly preponderant species in the baby's um, uh, now anaerobic large intestine. So, yes, absolutely. It's, a, it's an ex, a, another example of an absolutely beautifully crafted um, evolutionary mechanism. Yeah. Andrew, one more question from the gentleman. My name is Jim Craig Gray. Um, over evolutionary history, babies' heads have got bigger, presumably the brains have got bigger, and women's pelvises have got bigger, but not correspondingly. It seems to me that human childbirth seems to be the most difficult birth of all mammals. Why do women not have pelvises 10% wider? <laughs> uh, women, women don't have pelvises 10 or even more percent wider because if they did, they would walk even more badly well, than they do today <laughs> because there's a, there's a trade-off here between the shape of the pelvis and what you can push through it in the way of a baby's head and how it is adapted for walking on two legs for bipedal locomotion and what evolution's tried to do is to square the circle between these two almost irreconcilable sort of requirements do we have one more question before we go straight to the book signing which I believe will be Well, thank you very much. just remains for me to thank Jeremy Taylor. Thank you very much on all of our behalves. Um, Thank you.